We are very excited today to interview Dr. Sandra Webster. She's a psychologist, and she's just a wonderful expert on autism and autism-like disorders. Dr. Webster, could you please tell us a little more about your training and your, and your expertise? Sure. Um, my training was not linear. It was circular. So um, I started out in college at the normal time after high school. I dropped out, got married, had children, um, eventually went back to school when my youngest child was in the fifth grade, I believe, and uh, then finished my undergraduate, got a graduate uh, degree in the history of psychology, went on to the University of New Hampshire, where I got a degree in the um, history of psychology, a PhD, and then I proceeded to go to another institution, the Fielding Graduate University, where I learned about clinical psychology, testing, um, clinical theories, um, how to be a clinician. Um, then I took my licensing exam and um, got licensed to practice clinical psychology. Um, and I was in Cleveland at the time. So I decided to apply for jobs, um, and I did apply for a job at what is what was known at the time as the Helping Hands Center for Special Needs um, in Columbus. So I was hired, and I worked there for about four years. And then I decided to move out into private practice in Columbus, and um, I started practicing, um, which is an interesting term, I think, for what we do, um, but maybe more accurate than you might think. And um, I was uh, testing children for autism, as I had learned to do at Helping Hands, now Bridgeway Academy. They will appreciate the shout-out, I think. And um, I got a phone call from a gentleman who said, do you test adults? And I have never been afraid to uh, jump off the cliff if I needed to. So I said, I don't know why not. And um, I looked at my protocols and the testing materials. They went to adult age, the ADOS in particular. And um, I said, sure. So he came in. I don't remember who that was anymore. Um, and I went through and tested him for autism. <clears throat> and then somehow my name got out into the community, and I got more and more referrals for adults for autism testing. There seems to be a really a big need for adult uh, autism assessments, and there are people and organizations here who do that, but my name got out there, so I've had many requests, and I've tested over probably 175 adults 
on the spectrum, males and females. Not all of them have met the criteria, but many of them do. They have had a lifetime of experience of a feeling like they don't fit in. They feel like an outsider, and um, they do their research. People with autism do a lot of research. So when they come to me, they are already knowledgeable about autism and their experiences. So very often they do meet the criteria. Not always. Um, I remember one woman, um, maybe 40s, who came in. Apparently she was a counselor and she did counsel people with autism and she wanted to be diagnosed with autism so that she could say to her clients, this is kind of like an assumption that, yeah, I'm on the spectrum too. Um, but she did not meet the criteria uh, according to my assessment. And when I told her that, she said to me, you're wrong. Okay, then you're welcome to get another opinion. Um, and perhaps I was. Um, many adults, especially females on the spectrum, learn to mask. And I say especially females because females grow up watching other females all the time and even neurotypicals. And we look to other females. Am I as pretty? Am I as uh, popular? Am I whatever? So females learn from other females how to behave socially uh, in an acceptable way. So. Dr. Webster, and as you're describing more about autism and autism-like disorders, what would you say would be some highlights of the symptoms? So if our listeners uh, maybe feel like they have that disorder or someone in their family has that disorder, what would be some highlights, some giveaways sort of where someone should say like, hmm, maybe I have this condition, maybe I need to get tested to see if I have it? Mm -hmm. Um. Well, according to the ADOS, which is the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, now in its second edition, um, they consider autism to be composed of communication difficulties and interpersonal uh, reciprocal conversation difficulties. And I think to some extent that is true. Um, but the ADOS does not fully capture all that it is to be on the spectrum. So I don't use the ADOS as the single instrument that allows me to determine whether or not someone is on the spectrum. Um, I use another assessment called the MIGDAS, Montero Interview Guidelines for the Diagnosis of Autism Spectrum. And it allows me to ask about sensory issues and childhood experiences. And this is what many people who come into me for assessments are, are telling me about. I have 
difficulty with certain kinds of noises, very particular sounds, like um, the sound of people chewing, for example. Um, I have difficulty with fluorescent lights, not so much because of the light, although it is difficult for them, but the sound of fluorescent lights. Um, I have difficulty hearing a clock tick in, in a room, for example, and I've had to remove the clock from the room for some of my clients. Um, I have difficulty with the feel of denim. I cannot wear jeans. Or I have difficulty um, wearing clothes that are too tight or socks where the seams are not aligned with the my toes exactly or the tags in the back of my clothes. Or I cannot tolerate the texture of carrots or broccoli or celery, which is stringy. Or I can't tolerate foods that are mushy, like applesauce or oatmeal or something like that, or the texture of meat. Um, I cannot tolerate when foods are touching on the plate. I have to eat things in order. All right, those are some of the things that I hear about from my clients. Certainly the social aspect is important. Many people who come to me for testing have never felt connected to other people, don't know how to connect to other people. They know how to be polite. They know how to say, uh, how are you? How are you doing? They know how to listen, but they don't know how to respond. Um, they've always felt on the outside, even within their own family. So um, they have often developed strategies to get around that, um, but they've never felt part of the human race exactly. So um, those are some of the things that they come to me with. From a counseling point of view, when patients come in, are there any physical symptoms that might show up in someone that has autism that might give a clinician a clue like, hey, you may consider this diagnosis as a differential or something to at least to look yeah. at? Yeah. Um, there are times, having done this for five or six or seven years or however long it's been, um, that when they walk into the room, I know right away that they are on the spectrum. It's happened a couple of times with people who have come to me for depression and anxiety. Many people with autism have also depression and anxiety for kind of obvious reasons, if you understand autism. For example, one young man in his 20s, just, well, he is now just going off to college. He would come in and he would sit like a statue right across from me, never used any gestures, never changed facial expression, talked in a bit of a monotone, and complained of social anxiety. His sister also came to see me 
And she had learned to smile. And she's a beautiful girl. So her smile will just warm your heart. But you wouldn't think that she would be on the spectrum. She's younger, maybe three years or whatever. How was the eye contact? With him, he stared at me. With her, it was not regulative. People make eye contact with someone they're speaking with when they have an important point to make, but they tend to look off when they're talking or sometimes they will look off when you're talking to them because they can hear you better without the interference of the eye contact. Eye contact often seems intrusive, so it's not consistent. So if you say that uh, you know this person who doesn't make eye contact, well, okay, um, tell me more about that because it could be somebody with social anxiety or it could be um, a number of other reasons why, but it is not always that they don't make eye contact. Some people have developed a strategy for that entails looking at my nose or my forehead or something, and it feels like eye contact, sort of, but it isn't really. Would you say there's a lot of misconceptions about autism in general population? I sometimes get the question uh, from people, um, well, I thought that autism was a severe condition where someone lacks intellectual capabilities and they might have to be placed in a facility far away from other people. But as we know, it's a spectrum. It's a, it's a condition that is on a spectrum. So could you tell us a little more about the variety of, of things that we could see within the spectrum? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you must have heard that saying, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Okay. Um, all of my clients present very differently. Some present very calmly. Um, their eye contact might be um, not consistently looking at you like a neurotypical might, but um, they don't use gestures, but they're very calm, and they'll answer all the questions. And, yeah, and some of them um, have trouble speaking. They are not able to get words out coherently. You have to wait for them to process information before the words will become available to them. Um, they speak haltingly. Um, and some of them are highly verbal and can talk for 30 minutes easily about something that interests them. Um, I personally do not uh, see clients who are nonverbal, but there are some, um, or clients who uh, have severe cognitive disability. Um, that's not my strength. Um, I think I could, I uh, haven't been given the opportunity to work with a nonverbal client. I think that would be uh, a challenge, but an interesting one. But uh, given the fact that I'm really old, 
I'm not able to work with someone who is uh, whose behavior is uh, needs to be restrained at times. Earlier, you mentioned masking in females. And for our listeners who might not know, could you explain what masking is, as well as how symptoms might manifest in a female versus male? Okay, masking is uh, the attempt by an autistic person to behave like a neuro, like what they think a neurotypical would behave like. So, um, yeah, they they try very hard to make the eye contact. They do a whole lot of nodding and smiling and, um, yeah, pretending like they're neurotypical, okay? And women, like I said, are very good at imitating um, other women. Um, so... The different in the difference between the presentations of male versus female autism are that well essentially the ADOS um, is not uh, directed towards uh, identifying as autistic people who are very very good at doing the social thing, um, in quotes. Um, and many of the women are. They've become quite accomplished because uh, they want to fit in, they want to get by. Men do not imitate women, and they might imitate other men, but that's not necessarily the strategy that they need to to fit in with society necessarily. Not that men don't fit in with society, but the um, the characteristics they might pick up from another man will not uh, be the ones that people will be drawn to necessarily as they try to pretend they are a neurotypical male. Um, and there are very many different kinds of neurotypical males as well, so... It isn't as successful. Women just seem to be better at it. Would you say that people with autism can lead a happy life or a normal life, whatever that means? Wow. I have um, been seeing some clients for years. Um, it is helpful uh, for clients on the spectrum to talk about things that come up in their lives that they can't figure out or they don't fit into the patterns that they've developed. Um, I have told people, couples sometimes, that I'm a translator. I can speak both languages, and I believe to a large extent that's true. Um, I understand autism because I have listened so carefully to my clients' experiences. And I understand neurotypicals uh, because uh, I just do. I think whether or not I'm a neurotypical is certainly up for debate. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure about that, but um, I'm neurotypical enough that I can. Um, also, 
my partner of 23 years uh, is uh, on the autism spectrum. And so I know what it's like to live with uh, a man who uh, exhibits uh, autism-like symptoms. And I can tell a story about that. Would you please? We would love to hear it. Okay. Um, I, I have come home from work... Um, my work as a clinician, um, I never talk about clients by name or or gender or anything like that. But I might tell a story about a thing that happened. And so after one such long story that was kind of emotional because it was a difficult situation, um, I'm telling him all of this, and at the end of it he says, I think you used that word wrong. And that is a very typical autistic response. Why? Because, first of all, language is his thing. He was an English major in college. And so he calls himself a wordsmith. Okay. And secondly, an autistic person will get stuck on a detail like that and be unable to move out of that until that detail is brought out or resolved or something. So the really amazing thing is that he was able to listen to the whole thing and not bring up that wrong word use, potentially, until um, I was done. So, so you... As a person that probably uh, waited for some emotional connection at the end of the conversation or some type of support or um, reci reciprocation of that conversation, you didn't receive that. The answer was, hey, I think you used one word in your story wrong. He focused on that detail. That's right. Okay. That's right. So as a, as a partner to someone um, that has autism spectrum disorder, what would you say a spouse or a partner or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, how would they need to prepare or understand the other side to not get frustrated? Because it seems like you could get very easily frustrated that you're not getting the response that maybe you're waiting for. There are not many people on the spectrum are not capable of that kind. They don't have an emotional language, for one thing. Many of them do not have. And um, if they do, I mean, they know sad, anger, um, frustration a lot. Um, but some of the nuanced emotions they may not get. And they won't be able to identify with your feeling about that because they have difficulty, many of them, not all, putting themselves in your position. They cannot do that question about it because that when as you're talking about it it makes me feel like it almost sounds like someone that doesn't have empathy or someone that is almost like a maybe a personality disorder where it's a narcissism where where you where you have someone that can't put themselves in your shoes they don't understand your feelings it's everything's about them so does autism resemble at any time Something like that, or how would we know it's this? It's not narcissists. Uh, it's it's autism. 
the term narcissism has come up a lot in the past, uh, what is it, six, seven years for a particular reason. And it's now become part of the language so that it refers to anybody who uh, isn't behaving the way we need them to behave at a particular point in time. So I'm not going to speak about narcissism as a disorder because that's very different from the way it's being used now. But I'd also like to say that autism comes from the word auto, which means self. Um, so um, an automobile is a self-moving object. And, and long ago in the 40s, 1940s, um, they had something, well, we now call them vending machines, but they called them automats, meaning a market, a self-serve market kind of thing. So given the fact that autism is based on the concept of self like that, it does mean focus on self, okay? Um, so by definition, um, an autistic person has difficulty moving into another's world. It is not correct to say that they don't have empathy. Um, if I get, if my partner talks about, he's very interested in World War II, somewhat less so World War I, definitely the Civil War. Um, but if he starts talking about uh, soldiers, and what they had to go through, like the Battle of the Bulge. Um, it was very cold, as you might know, and their feet got frozen, and the fighting was horrendous. Um, he will cry. Okay. So is that empathy? It certainly seems to be. Okay. Um, and there are many people with autism who, given certain certain conditions can get very upset, you know. But I so I think the problem is certainly not lack of empathy because not one of my clients or the people in my autism group um, lack empathy. <clears throat> okay. Rather I think they lack the ability to identify with your feelings or another person's feelings about a thing, you know. So he will have no idea what it's like to sit with a client and listen to their stories. He wouldn't do that. He goes out with friends and he talks about World War II or whatever. Um, but I don't know that he's ever talked about feelings and things like that with people that he knows. Uh, they do a lot of bantering, a lot of guy talk stuff, uh, some of it like trash talking kind of stuff. Yeah, that's what they do. But they don't talk about feelings. Sounds like typical man, though. They don't talk about feelings. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Um, some of the younger men do, I think. I've heard them. But uh, certainly men my age, <clears throat> not likely to do that. 
I'd love to get back to something you mentioned earlier before we started recording. You said that there's kind of an uptick in adults looking to be assessed. And we briefly mentioned TikTok. Would you be comfortable sharing kind of your experience and your thoughts on TikTok and its influence? Um, I have never been on TikTok. <laughs> I plan never to be on TikTok. Yep. Um, I believe that TikTok spreads, and this is, remember, I've never been on it, so this is only hearsay, or might even be third say or fourth say or whatever, <laughs> but um, I believe that TikTok spreads a lot of misinformation, gives validation to people who self-diagnose, and I am very, very uncomfortable with that. Um, there are people who diagnose themselves with autism and profess to be part of that select group of people that I admire so much, but have never been formally diagnosed. And I find that in kind of insulting. So, um, you know, um... Do I think that people can self-diagnose? I think it's possible. But I also think that saying you're on the spectrum for some people has become kind of a fashion trend. Like a badge yeah. of honor almost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, these the people that I know on the spectrum are extraordinarily special people. And... Uh, yeah. So I don't like anything that appears to dismiss, belittle their experience. For sure. I think we had a discussion about how ADHD, people were self-diagnosing with ADHD and coming to your practice in huge amounts because of TikTok. So, and we, we've both been on TikTok. We had uh, <laughs> an experience there and then we decided eventually, you know, this is too much, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's definitely um, a lot of people these days that just want to self-diagnose and just hearing you talk about autism and about the many, many, many different variations that can be present. And I'm just sitting here thinking, yeah, we can tell you five big things that could happen with autism, but that's not going to let you really diagnose yourself. So you still need to go for a formal assessment because you would then go in depth and talk about these different factors that maybe make that condition. But like you said, you met one person with autism, you met one person with autism. So because it's so different, you know, it, it probably would be so hard to self-diagnose because you might pick one aspect of that condition and then run with it. Mm. Oh, sure. Like, um, I can't make eye contact, for example. I must have autism. Yeah. And and it's the same with me, with my clients. You know, sometimes they will, after a few years of therapy, they will bring up, well, I think I have autism. What do you think? And I always say, hmm, I've never once thought over the last few years that you had it. We can definitely test you, but I'm not seeing anything in our interactions that could tell me. Like, hey, here's this red flag. We need to test you for this. You know, I just don't see it. So, so, but I think TikTok and other social media spreads that 
general sort of information that makes people believe, well, yeah, I don't have eye contact, so therefore I must have autism. Mm -hmm. so a lot of misinformation out there, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. A lot, mm -hmm. yes. Is ADHD considered on the spectrum? What, what? Is ADHD considered a part? ADHD is neurodivergent. Autism is neurodivergent. So there's an overlap. Um, like, uh, do you remember the Venn diagrams? Um, the Venn diagrams we learned in school and math, as a matter of fact. Yes. There's one circle, and then to the right of that circle, and overlapping slightly with the first one, there's another circle. And there's a space in the middle that looks like a, um, sort of a football uh, where they overlap. And inside the football, that's where the symptoms are common. Um, so um, there is an overlap. Um, for example, many people on the spectrum have difficulty paying attention, focusing, they're easily distracted. And that certainly sounds a lot like ADHD inattentive, mm. right? Um, many people on the spectrum are fidgeting all the time. They, and I have a basket of fidgets in there that they like to play with, or they're anxious and their legs are bouncing up and down and things like that. So um, it looks like ADHD hyperactive. Okay. So there is a lot of overlap. Um, I have, uh, on occasion, diagnosed my clients with both. You couldn't have both until 2013, and then you could have both, according to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Bible. Manual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so when the fifth edition came out, the powers that be decided they could have both. So occasionally I will do that. If the ADHD symptoms seem um, uh, to interfere more than I would expect. But people with autism are, they have all kinds of things going on in their minds. They tell themselves stories. Um, they talk to themselves in their heads all the time. Um, they are trying to defend themselves from external stimuli, the sound of the clock, the feel of the wind, um, the, the feel of their clothes even. Um, so there's a lot going on in their heads. And that, to me, explains why they may not pay attention or they may have trouble concentrating or they could be distracted by something that you and I are not paying attention to. Um, so um, I do sometimes diagnose ADHD inattentive for people with autism so that they are able to get some medication, which nobody will give an autistic person um, because, um, because they do have trouble concentrating and the medication helps. So does that make it ADHD inattentive? Well, according to the uh, pharmaceutical protocol, if a thing works, then you have the thing. So maybe it is. And maybe I'm just not able to 
the difference because it's so small. I love the mischievous look in your eyes as you're describing this process because I, you know, I can I can see that your that your main focus is to help your client. Yes. And sometimes the DSM five, the powers to be, the authorities that we have to go by, they just don't live the experience that a client has, and therefore they don't understand that sometimes it is possible to have both. And other times, even if you think the inattention comes from autism, you feel forced to diagnose the, the uh, ADHD because you want the client to get the proper treatment. Yes. Right? Yes. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want my and client. And it sounds like you feel a little bad about it, uh, but, but I think there's no way around it. It's just there's so much gray in all of this. And sometimes we are forced to live by very rigid rules, almost like we have to be autistic about our work and it's not possible. Very rigid yeah. black and white rules. And, and, and there's really, it's so hard because yeah. we want our client to achieve the optimal functioning, the, the best way yes. to, to adjust. And sometimes the medications will help them do that. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I am... Sorry that there are not more um, prescribing people um, because I'm not a prescriber. Um, some of my clients are so desperate, and I don't know where to send them except to send them to you. Well, thank so, you for that. Yeah. Um, and you know, and it's it's so hard too because when you talk about medications for ADHD, a lot of these medications are considered controlled substances. And uh, there's certain rules about prescribing them. And a lot of our newer prescribers that are coming out of school, almost um, they just don't want to prescribe any controlled meds. So because yeah. everybody's scared, people want to protect their licenses. They don't want their client to get addicted to a substance. And let's face it, Adderall has a bad reputation. It does. So... So then other people, unfortunately, suffer for that, right? So if someone is, is uh, diagnosed with autism and ADHD and you send them to us, depending on which provider they get, that provider might be comfortable prescribing them Adderall or Vivians or something else for ADHD. Or they might say, you know, let's keep trying all these other medications that are probably not going to work, but we're going to put you through this process for months and maybe never get to Adderall or Vivians. So yeah. it's very sad. Yeah, I I do understand that. Um, I wouldn't send you a person who didn't give me enough evidence of ADHD inattentive um, to warrant medications. So I give them the CARS and um, the Condor's Adult ADHD Rating Scale. And if they score 70 or above and, and, and observer scores them 70 or above T-score on the ADHD inattentive, then that warrants um, sending them to you for medication, especially when they're telling me I'm in school, I'm trying so hard to get my assignments done, get my work finished and all of that. Um, 
could be executive dysfunction, but still um, there's enough evidence to support ADHD. If there were none of that, I wouldn't send them to you. Absolutely. And we love you for that. We know you're doing very good work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't falsify diagnoses. No. But if there's enough evidence to suggest that ADHD inattentive or even hyperactive impulsive might be a problem for my clients, then, then I will send them, even though I can't be sure if it's 100% autism or 100% ADHD or a mixture of both of those things, because I can't get in their head and separate that out. Not at all. And what do you think about, you mentioned this earlier today, you said someone called you once and said, do you diagnose adults? Do you see anything wrong with that? So there is this, this, I feel like a division in the therapeutic community. Some people will say, well, you can't be diagnosed with autism as an adult. You know, it had to be something that was diagnosed when you were a kiddo. And the same thing with ADHD, actually. There's a lot of people that will say, no, 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 you can't have ADHD as an adult. It's only a, ki a kiddo disorder. What do you think about the whole thing with autism and being an adult? Is it possible to have it as an adult? Or is it that only kids have it and then you grow out of it? Or how, how is this? Autism is a pervasive developmental disorder by definition, meaning pervasive, meaning that it affects many aspects of their daily functioning, and developmental, meaning that it's present at birth. So many of my adult clients, um, maybe they're 40, 50. I've tested a 79-year-old once. But think back um 20 years ago or when they were children, the autism diagnostic protocols were not in effect. I don't remember when the ADOS was first developed, but I don't think it was. And I know the Montero interview guidelines were not developed at that point. So these people got diagnosed as unruly, hyperactive, um, She's not paying attention in class um, as social outcasts or any one of a number of things. Um, but now we have the tools, and so we use them, and you can. It isn't. I would like to make a quick comment here. I know that many of my clients uh, appeal to Social Security for um income, social security, disability income. And I also know that the, uh, the powers in that organization say, um, if you are, if you were diagnosed over the age of 22, you can't have autism. And I'm thinking, really, do you know that it's a developmental disorder? And I wrote a letter to that effect, hoping that I said it nicer than that, but I wasn't feeling nice about that. Um, and the fact that they couldn't have been diagnosed earlier. I think the man at the time was 34, 
So um, when he was, say, 22, it would have been 12 years ago. They had some things in effect, but what if he was a quiet, sitting in his chair, zoning out kind of a little kid? Um, teachers like that. They, you know, he's fine. He's doing his work. He's cool. Oh, he doesn't have many friends. I get that, but that's okay. He's probably just shy. No, he had autism, but he went, uh, he fell through the cracks. So, um, yeah, he deserves to be diagnosed, and he deserves, if he cannot work, and many cannot, then if he needs supplemental income, that is what he should get. I was getting at that as well before you mentioned that story because I, I couldn't remember what age it was, but I remember seeing that on the Social Security Disability paperwork for, for clients that if they were diagnosed over a certain age, then it basically, like, it didn't matter, like it wasn't real, you know? And uh, yeah. and like you said, it's a developmental disorder. It's not going to go away. It may have been unnoticed because people mask, because people try so hard to fit in. Mm -hmm. But just because it wasn't unnoticed, you can't tell somebody they don't have that condition. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's crazy. Crazy. Absolutely <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a crazy world. What do you love about working with clients who have autism? Oh, well, my goodness, they're uh, they're honest. Um, they think they have interesting ideas. Um, they're reflective. Um, they have special interests. Um, I've learned about uh, Civil War trains, which I would never have learned anything about. From my partner, I've learned about World War II, things I would never have learned anything about. Um, I like the way they, they keep trying, uh, and many of them, it's interesting, the idea of um, trauma, Everybody at one point in their life could experience trauma, childhood trauma. Um, there are so many different kinds of trauma. But people on the spectrum experience trauma, traumatic childhoods, at a higher rate, it seems, at least from my small sample size, than neurotypical people. And why is that? Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but it's, it's interesting. So they have traumatic childhoods. Maybe, uh, the father was an alcoholic. Uh, the mother was, um, sort of passive, maybe, uh, had a mental illness of her own. Um, so many of them have trauma symptoms, that overlap with autistic symptoms. And I have one client whose father was an alcoholic and he was driving when she was in her early 20s, I believe, uh, their mother somewhere, and they had a, a serious fatal auto, auto accident. She lost both parents. He wasn't drunk at the time, but nonetheless, she lost both parents. 
but she still has a history of trauma when her father was drunk and all of that. Um, so we had a discussion the other day, and she was talking about she has this experience or this feeling or whatever, and I said, I was able to say with accuracy, I think, that's trauma. No, that's autism. That's trauma. That's autism. And I'm not sure. I'm not going to put my hand on the uh, Bible and say, I am absolutely right about this. But it feels right to me because the trauma symptoms um, impact in a different kind of a way. And they're triggered in a different kind of way. Um, the autistic symptoms seem to be very specific. So I don't know if I can say more about this at the moment than that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So trauma and or PTSD and autism and ADHD, uh, there's a whole lot of overlap among those. Do you find that maybe addictions go hand in hand with autism or do you tend to see that it has no correlation with autism, any type of addictions? I have had some autistic clients who are addicted. Not many. Uh, I can remember one in particular. Um, he lied to me about using some pretty serious drugs and I... Uh, I had to dismiss him because I can't, I don't know how to deal with a client who's lying to me. And I think it was a substance abuse issue, and that's not my field. So um, if there is any drug of choice for people on the spectrum, it's marijuana. Um, but that might be true more generally in the population anyway. I don't know. Um, so... None of the clients in the group um, are addicted. There is some drinking, yeah, yeah. But uh, the ones that I know that have been drinking are no longer drinking. So. I was going to ask you about maybe like any type of inspirational stories or any anything that you saw that maybe somebody came in like really struggling with autism, but then throughout the course of the therapy, they were able to maybe make some connections or, you know, I, I don't know how to ask this question, but, but yeah. I don't know if any <laughs> stories come to your mind. So Yeah, well, there's actually like three. Um, one of them is not, not one of my clients. Um, there was an article in the Washington Post yesterday about a guy who was diagnosed with autism when he was 12, 23 and 31 or something like that. Why three times? I don't know. I didn't have time to read the article. But um, he went to college and didn't do well, largely because of the executive dysfunction, the inability to do things in a timely manner, to manage schedules, that kind of thing. And that is common to autism. Um, so he dropped out, but he was playing poker uh, online and he's now a multimillionaire. And, um, but the inspirational part of the story is he was a very good poker player, but he didn't get invited to games. 
And he realized it was because he didn't have the social skills that, you know, allowed him to fit in. So he got a drama coach and he started learning how to be more social. Mask. Yeah, mm. to mask. So he got invited to more games. So um, that's an interesting story and a true one. Um, my own clients, I have one client who's had, I've seen her for years, um, had uh, um, a job that she was struggling with. She would call me uh, with a meltdown, and she finally quit. And then another job, same kind of thing, um, meltdown and all of that. Um, now she has two part-time jobs and is going to school full-time. So there you are. Wow. How did she accomplish that? determination mm. and um yeah and learning how to push through the executive dysfunction yeah very cool very cool and another uh, man uh, has been uh, he got a degree in ecology or something and then um, I told him about a program for autistic people. Um, it's by a company called Autocon. Um, I'm not sure they're still doing this, but he managed to get free computer classes, training, and uh, is now working in um, IT for a major company, and he's uh, happier than he's ever been. And he and his girlfriend are planning on buying a house and things like that. So so it's possible to have a fulfilling and successful life. It is definitely possible. But you have to, you might have to find a non-traditional route to do that. Okay. So I have a student now um, in college who's an exceptional writer, but he's struggling with the executive dysfunction and the not fitting in and the low self-esteem and things like that. He needs to find his own path. And uh, hopefully that's something we can work on this summer. Dr. Webster, you gave us so much information about autism today. Would you have any other pointers, uh, maybe as we're nearing the end of the interview, any other pointers for people that might suspect they have autism or feel like they're not fitting in? Or It's hard not to fit in. It feels very lonely. It's hard not to connect with other people. So the first thing is to seek out a psychologist or other therapist who can help you learn how to Figure out what's going on with you, what's wrong. Um, if you are referred for an autism diagnosis, and I am not doing them anymore, um, but if you are referred and you are diagnosed, that can be hard. It can be a change in the way you look at yourself. But if you accept it, um, then you know and will learn how to work with it. Okay, it's uh, 
it's hard to learn a new thing about yourself. It changes everything that you've known about yourself for a thousand years. But uh, I think uh, facing the reality is more important than hiding from it. Because only when you face the reality of things can you make a change that works for you. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dr. Webster, we're so thankful that you allowed us this time to interview you. And uh, you said you will retire in five years. So I think we still have some time to send you some more clients. Okay. Yes. Good. Thank you. So feel free to find Dr. Webster on Psychology Today um, if you're looking for therapy because she's not doing testing anymore. That's right. Do you know any other psychologists in the area that you would recommend for uh, if someone wants to get tested or any organizations? Um, I know Julie Canfield. I think that's her name. Dr. Julie Canfield does assessments. Um, um, there's also a place called, um, what is that? Um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name of the place. There's some place called Mindscapes. But I am not recommending that because I don't know anything about it and I have no personal experience. There's also one of my clients got tested online and I looked at the report. It was very thorough. So there might be something available uh, online. um, And I would gladly train anyone who wants to learn how to do autism assessments. We might have to take you up on that offer. Okay. Thank you so much again, and just thank you for your wonderful being and and for being here for people who struggle with some of these issues. You're welcome, and thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.